Our text this morning is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Hebrews 12, I'm sorry, Luke 12, 13 through 31. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's pray. Uh, Father, give us wisdom this morning. Give us, give us right discernment about our lives and about our souls. Help us seize the moment of being alive and being able to repent and put our trust in You. Father, I pray that You would apply Your Word to each individual person just how would it would glorify You most. Father, I pray that worship and valuing and treasuring you would come from our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of this message is Invest Well and Become Rich. Invest well and become rich. I remember being in my sophomore year of college, a couple years away from home, uh, getting talking to one of my best friends growing up, who I grew up in the church with, uh, on the phone. Uh, he was going to a different university. And uh, talking to him just, about what he's been up to, how he's been doing. And uh, the topic of God came up, and it was evident that his first couple years of college uh, were had basically uh, been spent partying and drinking and gambling and basically indulging the flesh. And one of the questions he asked me is he said, tell me one thing, Sam. 
how come God wants to withhold from me everything I enjoy doing? I love to drink and to get drunk, and God says not to. I love to gamble, and God says not to. I love to watch football on Sundays and not go to church in the morning, and God says not to. And I know all this, and I know you and I were all raised with this, but why wouldn't God want me to be happy? His conception of God was a God basically saying, if you want me, deny yourself all good things. Anything that would be good for you, that you would desire, that you'd really want, deny it. And at the time, I, I guess, wasn't theologically prepared to know how to answer him. Uh, but now, I think what I would relate to him was a story that I heard from uh, C.S. Lewis. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, he's a brilliant man, great mind. He had a friend that struggled with homosexuality who basically wrote a letter to him. Uh, he wasn't practicing it, but he wanted to. And his question was the same question. Why wouldn't God want me to have the desires I have? If God is good, why wouldn't He want me to do that? Well, C.S. Lewis writes back a little parable about how he walks his dog. He says, when I take my dog for a walk every day and I'm walking down Main Street, we always come to this light pole and then I have my dog on a leash and when it's inevitable, whenever we get to that light pole, the dog tries to go around the outside of it and when he begins to do that, I jerk him back on this side of the pole and he's like, if my dog had a mouth, I can tell by the way he's looking at me, like he would say, you're such a jerk. How come you always yank me, and why won't you let me go where I want to go? And he said, the interesting thing is, though, what the dog wants and what I want are the same thing. The dog wants to get on going forward. He doesn't want to be jerked back. But he says, myself having more intelligence and a better perspective, I want to go forward too, and I want my dog to go forward. But what I know is, he can't get there that way. And Lewis says, in every sinful desire you have, there's something good in there that God actually wants you to have. You just can't get it that way. And God knows you can't get it. And God would be not loving and not good if He didn't jerk us back and say, joy isn't found going that way. Happiness isn't found going that direction. 
So we come to a text where Jesus is continuing to try to give perspective to His disciples. At the beginning of chapter 12, He tells them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are their role models. They're the most influential people, at least to the Jews of His day. They're those who the people looked up to. They were the guides to God. But they hated Jesus. And Jesus actually said, if you're not with me, you're against me. And so the people are sitting here saying, wait a minute, all my religious role models say he's bad, but Jesus says, if you don't accept me, you're against me. They say he does what he does by the power of Satan. So what are they going to do? And Jesus is speaking to the crowds And he's telling them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware that leaven is hypocrisy. And he tells them, don't be a hypocrite. God's going to expose everything. You don't get away with anything. There's not one thing that you've done in a private room that isn't going to be shouted from the housetop. God cannot be, you cannot hide your life from God. The stupidity of hypocrisy, of pretending to be one person, but actually doing another thing when you're going to be found out all along. What the Pharisees valued was the praise of man. They wanted to project themselves in such a way that people would honor them. They would bow down to them. They would call them father or they would say teacher and they would wear their robes and they just loved to stroll through town and receive greetings. And they would do public prayers so people would notice. And he tells his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. They loved the praise of man, man's acceptance. And Jesus says, don't fear them. Don't live your life trying to get man's acceptance. If you follow me, yes, they might kill you. But after that, they can't do anything. This is Jesus giving them perspective. That seems crazy. Don't fear them. All they can do is kill your body. But after that, they can do nothing, but he says, rather fear him that can not only kill the body, but send your soul to eternal punishment in hell. You remember, hell is separation from all the goodness of God and being under his wrath. Not only are you not relationally connected to God in hell, you're not creationally connected to God in hell. Right now, you experience thousands of blessings from this world. You get to taste food. You get to see light. You get to stand on ground. You get to experience times without physical pain. None of that will accompany the person in hell. And Jesus is trying to give them perspective. Say, helping them value what's really valuable. Well, the other type of leaven 
that they need to watch out from from the Pharisees is their greed. Not only the love of praise a man, but the love of money. In Luke 16.13, we read this. No servant can serve two masters, for he'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. He sees into their hearts. And so today we're going to look at the leaven of the Pharisees in the sense of their greed for physical possessions. And Christ is giving them proper perspective. Christ is not saying, figure out all the good investments out there. Deny yourself those to prove your love for me. What he's saying is, Don't be deceived. See what a good investment is and go get it. Because the truth is that at the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore. In the presence of God is fullness of joy. That's what everyone's after. Everybody wants joy and pleasures. And you can't be satisfied with the things of this earth. So let's look at this text. It's real simple. Your notes, watch out for covetousness. Understand that one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions and be rich towards God. Next week, we're really going to flesh out number three. What does it mean to be rich towards God? Look at this. Someone in the crowd said to him, so he's been teaching about the leaven of the Pharisees, and someone said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, this is interesting. There's obviously a family controversy over here or, or, uh, with this fellow. And he has the Son of God in front of him. And Jesus is teaching him about some of the most important things he'll ever hear. He has one of the greatest privileges. And it's almost like he just can't help himself. When is he going to get done preaching? When is he going to get done preaching? I can see he's a rabbi, a teacher. And what they would do in those days is uh, the Jewish people would go to the rabbis and have them help settle family disagreements or, or issues that might be going on with your neighbors. And so he interrupts Jesus's teaching and he doesn't ask for wisdom, but if you look at verse 13, he says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He wasn't saying, listen to this scenario, what's right. He's rather sees that Jesus has authority and that Jesus is powerful, and that Jesus can be useful to himself. And so he commands him to tell his brother to divide the inheritance with him. Now, we don't know anything about the circumstances 
of what's going on with that man and his brother other than that there's obviously relational struggle over money. 2,000 years later, nothing's different. Families split in half because of financial disagreements. A parent dies, one brother gets this, another sister gets this, and there's hard feelings over inheritance. It was that way then and is that way now. And Jesus says to him in verse 14, man, this is not a kind way to address someone. He doesn't say friend. He says, mister, in a sense, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? Now there's irony in this statement (laughs) because Jesus is in fact going to be that man's judge And he could be that man's arbiter if he would love him more than money. That's one of the, those are two roles Christ has. But what Jesus says is, who made me? You think I came down here to tell your brother to give you money so I can be useful so that you can get what you want? And that you get something and now your brother's upset? You think that's? Why I'm here? And then he said to them, he's been preaching to the crowd, and he continues preaching to the crowd. He uses this man's request as an opportunity to continue to warn. He says this, take care and be on guard against all covetousness. Now, two commands there. Take care. This is where we get the word to see uh, in the imperative form. Jesus is saying, look, see it, recognize it. Don't be deceived by it. That's what he means when he says, take care. And then he says, be on your guard. Uh, Be on your guard means um, to flee from it, stay away from it. So it's as if Jesus is saying, hey, look, you know, I was just hunting with my brother a few weeks ago, West River, and we're walking, and my brother's hearing must not be the best because there's a rattlesnake rattling. I can hear it clear as a bell, and he's walking right towards it. I'm like, Joe! What? There's a rattlesnake right there. Oh, he, and he steps back. Same thing. Look, do you see it? Stay away from it. Move. Get out of the way. That's what Jesus is saying. Except it's not a rattlesnake. It's against all covetousness. What is covetousness? It refers to an inordinate desire for riches. Lawanida says, here's what they say of covetousness, it's a strong desire to acquire more and more material possessions or to possess more things than, than other people have, all irrespective of need. 
Another way that I might say it is it's unsettled desires. It's unsatisfied desires that needs more. It's idolatry. Some ways you can know that you struggle with covetousness. You might be sitting there saying, I don't know if I'm a covetousness person. Let me help you. You are. The, the thing that's important is that you see it, that you look at it, and that you look out for it. Do you struggle with fairness? Do you ever struggle looking at other people's lives and struggle with fairness? That's what this gentleman's struggling with in this text. It's a sign you struggle with covetousness. You look around, you feel like you're not, you're getting ripped off. Maybe you feel like everyone has it better than you. Then you're unable to love people because bitterness grows up in your heart and covetousness destroys the relationships with whom you're comparing your life with. Is, do you ever do that? If you spend most of your time thinking and planning uh, things concerning our thinking and planning your life around material things or earthly praise, whether you're coveting the praise of man or material possessions, you struggle with covetousness. If that's what takes up most of your time, if you find yourself jumping from one thing to another while ignoring God's word and worship, you struggle with covetousness. If you find yourself on your phone going, I don't know why I'm doing this right now, but I'm just doing stuff. And I'm looking for something. I don't even know what I'm looking for, but I'm doing something. You're coveting. You're looking. You're unsettled. Your soul is looking to rest. Maybe you're planning one thing. You get that done and you're planning another thing. And then this vacation and that vacation. And then you're going to the next one and you're trying to live off this thing that just keeps eluding you. You struggle with covetousness. If you are easily offended by other people, you covet their approval. If you find that your relationships are often strained, with the people in your life, likely covetousness has gotten between you and the people in your life. Whether it's your relationship with God or your relationship with other people. In fact, in every sin you can find covetousness. Test it out. Whether it's theft, whether it's any sort of idolatry, any sort of sexual sin, any sort of uh, anger is upset, you've been ripped off, sinful anger, grumbling. If you're a grumbler, you tend towards grumbling, you struggle with covetousness. The opposite of covetousness is thankfulness. The thankful person is full of thanksgiving and gratitude 
realizing they have more than they deserve, and therefore not tempted with covetousness. The person who's truly thankful fully has right perspective. You see, that's the weapon to destroy covetousness. It's to see your life with a different set of glasses on, to see correctly, to see rightly. I want you to turn with me to Ephesians 5 and take you to a text that's always baffled me, but I think I've come to understand it more recently. It actually cuts at a root of uh, one of the ways I covet personally. Ephesians 5, verse 4. Paul says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Okay. See, that makes sense to me. Okay. Christians ought not to let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. They're out of place. See, morally, that makes sense to me. But then he says, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. What? What does that have to do with anything? Did he lose his train of thought? Is he going from one truth to another truth and they're not related? You see, I can have a clever mind. And a crude joke can come to my mind when I'm with my hunting buddies. And... I know they're going to laugh hard or I see something that I could send them. What? And it's so hard not to do it. This is your pastor confessing sin. I need Jesus too. All right? So what is it? What am I coveting? I'm coveting their laughter. I want their approval. I want to be funny. I want them to have fun when they're with me. I want them to see my cleverness. So he says, instead of doing that, be thankful. Well, what does that mean? Well, if I'm accepted in Christ and I have full approval of God and the fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ like Colossians 2 tells us and I've been filled in Him, why do I need to offend God with crude jokes in order to get more approval? See, I need to remember I'm accepted. My approval is there. The opposite of covetousness is thanksgiving. Covetousness is idolatry. It's Romans one twenty five. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. That's the root of all sin. You could have God, but instead you go covet something other than God, His creation, while you forget Him. It's dangerous. It's like a rattlesnake that can kill you. And Jesus says, beware of it. Turn with me to 1 John 2.15. 1 
1 John 2.15, we want to just build out a little bit more this idea of covetousness. 1 John 2.15, John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If you can, it's like saying, it's like eating a piece of roast beef instead of filet mignon because you've never tasted it. It's just you're going to sit here and keep eating. If, if you love the world, then have you ever experienced the love of God? That, that's the idea because it says, for all that is in the world, and he names three things. The desires of the flesh. Your hunger to eat food. Your sexual desire. Your temptation to laziness because you don't want to physically exert energy. These are desires of the flesh. All that is in the world the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes. These are things you want that you don't have. Coveting. See, the first one is coveting too. You're desiring some physical blessing you think you deserve, like someone who looks at pornography is thinking, God's holding out on me. I deserve the desires of my flesh right now. I deserve this good feeling, so I'm just going to go get it. That's how the world thinks. But then the desires of the eyes. You see something you want that you don't have. This is what the world does, right? This is Facebook. Or whatever the new millennials do. Instagram or Snapchat, whatever. You see everyone else has a great, wonderful life, and you're missing out. They're on vacation. You're not on vacation. It's like a rattlesnake. Crouching. And then he says the pride of life. This is the love of the praise of man, right? You're successful. You're powerful. You're important. Isn't that the goal of every Facebook account? You know, I'm happy. I'm getting my desires. (laughs) I want to look like I have it all. And I want people to see that I have status. So you put your best pictures on, your best moments, you leave out all the ugliness, and you're just like a hypocrite, just like the Pharisees. This is what they do. Pretend like you're something you're not because you're desperate for likes or for approval or for someone to say nice things about you. This is dangerous. I videotape my 13-year-old daughter shoot a buck. I put it on YouTube. Laura, I had Laura put it on Facebook. You want to know how much human praise? Oh, what a good dad taking your daughter out. Good job, Ella. Ping, 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 ping. This feels good. You could just spend a lifetime trying to get the praise of man, and yet it's dangerous. Ecclesiastes 5.10, this is an important verse to write down. 
You don't have to turn here, but just listen to this. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. This is written by the richest man on the face of the earth at the time. Solomon. You'll never get more money than Solomon. And Solomon said, the man who loves money will not be satisfied. He'll be just as desperate seeking after satisfaction. The love of money leads to all kinds of problems. You look at Achan in the Old Testament, his love of money brought disaster to himself and his family. Balaam's love of money prompted his foolish attempt to curse God's uh, pr- prompted his foolish attempt to curse God's people. It ended up costing him his life. Delilah's love of money led her to betray Samson, which ultimately led to the death of thousands. Judah's love of money caused him to betray. Judas's uh, love of money caused him to betray the Lord Jesus Christ and suffer eternal torment in hell. Ananias and Sapphira's love of money led them to lie to God and brought about their executions through instant divine judgment. It's not the route, it's not the path you want to go down. Which brings us to our second point. Understand that one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. It doesn't. In Mark 4.18, now I'm just going to give you a lot of verses and just listen with me because you probably won't keep up. This is the, in the middle of the, the good soil are the four soils. And the third seed falls among the thorns. And here's what Jesus says. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. That is scary. The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. That's why Jesus says, watch out. See it. Open your eyes. Because you look at that and that looks better than the Word of God. Jesus says man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Proverbs 30 verse 8 says this, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Riches are deceitful. Now money's neutral. Money is neutral. You can use it for good or for evil, but it can deceive the human heart. The love of money is evil. Because you're called to love God. We will give away God for material blessing. Listen to Psalm 52, 7. See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. 
Man, that's poetically scary. See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. Or Proverbs 11.28, whoever trusts in his riches will fall. It's a guarantee. But the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Our Job said, if I did this, I should be damned. And Job said, I didn't do this. Job 31.24, if I've made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, he's the richest man in the land. If I've rejoiced because of my wealth, was abundant or because I had found much, if I had looked at the sun when it shone or the moon uh, moving in splendor and my heart has been secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges for I would have been false to God above. In Deuteronomy 8, Moses says, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. See, God's taking Israel from slavery into their own land. And he says, be careful, because when you start to be rich, be careful that you don't say, by my power and the might of my hand, I've gotten this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God. For it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. You see, to go after wealth, to love money, is to forget God. You can't do both at the same time. 1 Timothy 6.9. If you have your Bibles, turn here with me. This is one of the key balancing points. Someone might think, oh, see, money's bad. I just got to stay away from money. No, you need to not forget God and then you'll know what to do with your money. Listen to what he says to Timothy. 1 Timothy 6.9. And I think all these verses are in your notes. So you can go look at these later. 1 Timothy 6.9 But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. You just do. It's not a godly to desire. Into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And then, if you look, let's see if I have it in here. And then at the end of 1 Timothy 6, he tells us that God gives us everything to enjoy, but be careful not to set your heart 
on the riches you have. God gave them to you to enjoy, but don't set your hope in them. Don't make your riches your foundation, your trust, your security. But rather, be generous. Be ready to give. Be rich towards God. So one's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. If that's been the driving nature of your life thus far, you've been walking towards the rattlesnake the whole time. And Jesus is giving you perspective. He's helping you think clearly. So what is one's life? consist of. The word life there is not bios, which would mean your physical body, where you get the word biology, but it's the word zoe in the Greek language, which means meaningful, purposeful life. For one's life, meaningful, uh, purposeful, the best life does not consist of the abundance of possessions. Eternal peace and joy and hope cannot come from the abundance of possessions. What is a person's life? What's the value of that life? What does it mean to have it? What is the greatest life? Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. If your life is not the accumulation of your possessions or how much pleasure you can get down on this earth through material things, then it must be relationships. See, even the non-believing world kind of knows this, right? People on their deathbed don't wish they would have made more money. They wish they would have had better relationships. What's the law If you funnel it all down, it comes down to relationship with God, loving God, and loving people. And our covetousness is a barrier to those two things, to loving God and to loving people. In John 17, 1, Jesus had spoken these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life. The fullness of joy is in the presence of God. Pleasures forevermore are at the right hand of God. It's in relationship to God that you have eternal life. But our flesh will be deceived so easily by we take these glasses off, our perspective goes away, we forget God and we start worshiping the creature rather than the creator. First Peter 3.18 says this, 
For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Jesus Christ came down to this earth to bring sinners to God. Seemed like it would be impossible. One sin against an eternal God, eternal punishment. It took an eternal God-man to come down and stand in your place and bear the wrath of God for your sins in order that you can be brought to God. What would it be like to be able to go to sleep at night knowing you have a relationship with God and you're not waiting for the wrath of God for your sins, but they've been wiped away in Christ. His perfect righteousness has been put in your account. That's more comfort than a billion dollars in your bank account. What does Jesus say? What are you going to give for your soul? What, do you, what have you gained the entire world and forfeit your soul? Poor investment. Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but store up for yourselves treasures that are in heaven. He doesn't say, Leave this great thing in order to prove your love for me. He says this is temporary and it's going away. And if you put your trust in it, it'll never satisfy you. Put your trust in me and you will be in relation to me for all eternity. You'll be my son and my family. You'll receive the inheritance of a son. And to my friend, I would say, God is so good that He will not say it's okay to chase down roads that will never satisfy you. That will ruin your personal relationships with your family and friends and ultimately your relationship with God. That is not a loving God. So Jesus came. He warned them of the leaven of the Pharisees living for the praise of man, living for possessions. And he's going to turn the, the next verses in this text. He's going to tell them not to be anxious about anything. For God knows their needs. The heavenly Father's good. He's a rewarder. He'll take care of you. Build your life on Him. Let Him be your refuge. And if you do that, if you are made right with God, you begin to fight your covetousness. You watch your relationship with God will grow and your relationship with the people in your life will get better. Father, You sent Christ not so that He'd be useful so we could have more money, but rather that He would show us where true life is. Father, I pray that You would let our hearts believe that knowing You is eternal life, is the greatest life. Father, help us hate our sin as it separates us from You. As Christians, it separates us from You relationally. As non-believers, it separates us from You eternally. Let us repent. Let us come to our senses. Let us make good investments 
by trusting in you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we'll conclude this morning proclaiming together where true joy and contentment is found. So would you stand? Let's sing together.
Christ. All glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing. All glory be to Christ. Can be seated for a few minutes here. It's interesting, the sovereignty, the providence of God of like when this text came. Our finance committee has been meeting, trying to figure out how much money we could afford to potentially build a church or buy a church. And um, I think we've been humbled as we look at kind of God has provided for us all the way up to this time, but the expense of building and uh, is higher than maybe what we expected our ability to maybe raise as much money as we thought, uh, maybe higher than we thought. Last Monday, um, uh, the leader of our finance committee, Dana, kind of laid out for us monthly payments on a million loan, for example, and it can be up to $17,000 a month, which is a lot of money. So I feel like uh, we came to a little bit of reality with where we're at and uh, what we could afford. And if we were going to do anything, we just realized Lord would have to bring about generosity within our own church family. Uh, for us to kind of take care of some of the needs that are in front of us. Um, We discovered that same night, actually, a building that none of us had ever seen that is about, square footage-wise, what we would dream to be able to uh, put up. And... We're at the very beginning of checking this out, but we just ask for prayer uh, as all those who can make it from the building committee and finance committee are going to view that building tomorrow night and um, come back to church and discuss and pray about what the Lord might have for us. Um, And so we really don't have much more than saying, let's pray. But I know that God knows our needs and that He'll lead us and uh, we're never going to be a church begging people to give against their will because God loves cheerful givers. And so we'll be faithful to tell you our needs and and just pray that how the Lord would have us uh, self-sacrificially give for the good of the body and for generations, maybe 50 years down the road. So I just ask for prayer uh, in that regard and we'll just keep you posted uh, 
as uh, we go forward. Um, now, all those who are going to be installed, be voted on for membership, if you'd come forward, uh, this is one of the exciting times uh, of our church where people have committed to want to be a part of the church body. They're essentially saying, we want to be accountable to the body and be accountable to uh, love each other. Um, where's Scott at? Are we just going to do all these? Okay, awesome. <laughs> We're going to do this two Sundays. We still might do it next Sunday too. Um, so first we have uh, Colton uh, Heidecker here. He was just baptized a few weeks ago. Many of you got to hear uh, his testimony. I don't want to stand behind you guys. I'm going to come down here. Um, and so uh, the elders, uh, we've gotten to get to know Colton uh, quite a bit over the last six months or so. And the elders are recommending uh, Colton for membership upon his profession of faith in Jesus Christ made public by his baptism. Upon the completion of the membership classes and requirements, he's here today to commit himself to this local expression of the body of Christ. So does Sovereign Grace Church receive him into membership and commit to him in the love and discipline of the Lord Jesus Christ? All in favor, say aye. Oppose, same sign. Okay. Then we have Brandon. I was planning on you next week, so just, what's your last name? Haim, that's right. Brandon Haim. Uh, the elders are recommending uh, Brandon Haim for membership upon his profession of faith in Jesus Christ made public by his baptism a couple weeks ago. And upon the completion of the membership classes and requirements, he is here today to commit himself to this local expression of the body of Christ. Does Sovereign Grace Church receive him into membership and commit to him in the love and discipline of our Lord Jesus Christ? All in favor, say aye. All right. All right. Now we have Eric Bishop. The elders recommend Eric Bishop. It's about time, right? We were going to do this before the summer, and then it was our fault, got pushed back, and we're finally here. Uh, we recommend Eric Bishop for membership upon his profession of faith in Jesus Christ made public by his baptism, and upon the completion of the membership classes and requirements, he is here today to commit himself to this local expression of the body of Christ. Does Sovereign Grace receive him into membership? and commit to Him in the love and discipline of our Lord Jesus Christ. All in favor, say aye. Opposed, same sign. Okay. I'm going to save the whole spiel. You've heard it three times now, all right? <laughs> the elders recommend Maris uh, Gruy for membership, and she's here today to commit herself uh, to this local expression of the body of Christ. Does Sovereign Grace receive her into membership 
and commit to her in the love and discipline of our Lord Jesus Christ. All in favor, say aye. All right, now we have Jade Kallenbeck. Kambelek. I'm sorry. At least I got Jade and not Brandy, right? <laughs> okay. The elders uh, also recommend uh, Jade uh, for membership. And she's here to commit herself to this local expression of the body of Christ. Does Sovereign Grace receive her into membership and commit to her in the love and discipline of our Lord Jesus Christ, all in favor, say aye. Opposed, same sign. Okay. Now we have Brandy Cartney that the elders recommend for membership. Does Sovereign Grace uh, Church receive her into membership and commit to her in the love and discipline of our Lord Jesus Christ? All in favor, say aye. One of the welcome to the church family. And for those of you who are members, you know that this isn't just going through the motions. Uh, we really take see church membership as one of the greatest gifts of God. But it can only be that way if it's not just a thing we do to get people on the rolls. But we take serious our commitment to each other. They're committing to loving you so much that if they see you walking away from Christ, they will in love come to you, plead with you to come to your senses and repent and trust Christ. And they're asking you to hold them accountable with their lives. And so this isn't just something we do, uh, but we take serious the commands of our Lord Jesus uh, in our relationship to each other. And if you're a Christian and you haven't been baptized, we invite you to baptism. If you have been baptized, you haven't become a member, we'd love to show you in the scriptures why we think this is uh, what God would call you to, uh, to commit to the local body. So uh, join with me in thanking God in prayer for his work. Father, we thank you for all these lives uh, that are representations of your amazing grace and power uh, to save sinners from their sins and to cause sinners to do this crazy thing. Ask for accountability. Ask for help. Commit to being involved in other people's lives to selflessly love the body. That's all evidence of your amazing grace. And so, Lord, we do give you all the praise and honor and glory. And Lord, uh, we do ask that you would lead us, that you would show us the future of sovereign grace as far as facilities. We know that facilities do not make up a church, uh, but uh, they're in, in just a tool to be used that you may be glorified more. So we just ask that you would lead us in Jesus' name. Amen.